Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Attaining misery can take a lot of work, but don't worry. The following five strategies will definitely get you there. Number one, cling to entitlement. Expect unfailing attention, respect, and subservience from others. Compromise, patience, and responsibility are relevant only to the other guy. Live with the awareness that life owes you and that you were put on this planet to collect. Number two, it's all personal. Malicious intent is always there if you just look carefully enough, especially when it comes to family members. Spouse forgot to call? View this as conclusive proof that you don't really matter to them and probably never have. Children acting up at bedtime? See them as viciously spiteful and yourself as a sorry excuse for a parent. It's very simple. Ignore nothing and always assume evil intent. After all, if you don't take things personally, No one else will do it for you. Number three, focus on problems. What's the point of having problems if you don't focus on them? Keep track of all your problems and constantly review them. Nurture the attitude that you can't really move on to anything unless everything is resolved first. And remember, there is no solution without a problem. Number four, magnify. People often cheat themselves out of misery by Maintaining perspective. Why think of yourself as just human when fatally flawed and irredeemably warped are available? When thinking about past mistakes, why stop at constructive regret when paralyzing guilt is within reach? Trust me, all that negativity will eventually become reality. And number five, just say no thanks to gratitude. All the hard work you've invested in misery will go down the drain if you start messing around with gratitude. Start by discounting all the good in your life as a given. Next, focus your mind on all the ways life continually disappoints you. In time, you'll even see the bad in the good. A final word, misery loves company. The more you share it with others, the more you'll wind up having. Well, there you have it. We could just close in prayer right there. <laughs> right, I want to welcome everybody who's here in the room, everybody watching online today. Our topic this morning is the miserable life. So you picked a great Sunday to be here. Because what we're going to do is we actually are going to look at a few ways to make your life absolutely miserable by taking a look at the opposite of what God prescribes in this book right here, the Bible. So we're in this series called I'm Good. Because I believe that as Christians, even if our circumstances are not good, we can maintain a good attitude. We can have joy. We can have peace. We can have contentment regardless of the environment we find ourselves in. And so what I want to do this morning is we're going to take a look at a big passage coming from the book of Philippians. Because this is exactly what the Bible says. The Bible says that you and I, we can say, I'm good. You know, it is well with my soul because God is good, because God loves his children, because God is sovereign, he's in control, 
And because God promises that he's taking even the negative things in our lives and he's going to use them for good. Now, so far in this series, we've discovered that what we're truly after is joy. Sometimes people use the term happiness or inner happiness as a synonym for that. And, you know, if, depending on how you define it, that can work too. But at the end of the day, I would say this, God is pro-joy. God is pro-joy. So stay with me here as I read through a lengthy passage from the book of Philippians. Okay, this is from Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. And what we're going to do is we're going to contrast what you might call misery-enhancing life strategies with what we actually see in Paul's life with God. So here we go. Paul says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. He says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. All right, so let's talk about a few misery-enhancing life strategies that contradict what we see in Paul's life. First of all, wait to be joyful, people, until your circumstances are just right. If you do that, guess how long you'll wait? <laughs> Forever and ever. Now, I want you to notice a phrase Paul uses here in verse 12. This is a great passage. As I dug into this, so many rich things here. He says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Okay, he uses the same phrase again in verse 19. I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Paul is talking about his happenstances his circumstances, most likely referring to the fact that he was in prison. Now, if you were thrown into a Roman prison, it probably wouldn't make you very happy. But Paul is saying, 
I want you to know how I feel about what is happening here, about my circumstances. You might think that I would be discouraged sitting in a Roman prison. On the contrary, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard that I am in chains for Christ. Now understand, in ancient times, prisoners were often physically chained to their guards. So Paul is chained to these soldiers in what he calls the palace guard. Folks, that is Caesar's guard, kind of like the secret service. I mean, this is amazing here. He can tell them about Jesus all day long, and they can't get away because they're chained to him, right? Do you see his perspective here? Paul's saying, man, I've been trying for a long time to figure out how to get the gospel to Rome, to the palace, to Caesar. Usually you got to bribe somebody to do that. But now Caesar is chained me to his guys. They can't get away. So when I say, hey, you want to hear about Jesus? They can't go anywhere. I'm telling you, folks, Paul doesn't think he's their prisoner. He thinks they're his prisoners. You want to hear about Jesus? Want to hear about Jesus? Want to hear about Jesus? Paul is saying, because of what has happened to me, not only is the word getting to Caesar's people, but also because I'm facing this ordeal with courage and with joy, other brothers and sisters are looking at what's going on, and they're getting fired up. And they're saying, hey, I can live like Paul is living. I can do that. Now, in this series, if you were here the last couple of weeks, we've talked about this thing called the happiness paradox. It goes like this. I will never be happy if the ultimate goal of my life is simply for me to be happy, if I just aim at happiness. That we have to aim at something different. We have to pursue meaning. Well, this week, we come to what might be called the happiness illusion, and it goes like this. I believe I'll be happy if I get the circumstances I desire, if the things that happen to me are the things I want to have happen to me. You know, one of the most reliable findings in all of the happiness research is that people are terrible at predicting the things that will make them happy. You know, we all do this. If, if I just had this job, this salary, this house, this marriage, this car, this body, this lifestyle, then I'd be truly happy forever and ever. You know, the problem with all those things is not that they don't make us happy. They just don't make us as happy as we want for as long as we want. See, people get those things, and they're not everlastingly happy, and so they think, oh, man, I must have wanted the wrong thing, or I must be the only one who feels this way. There must be something wrong with me. Well, the truth is, you didn't want the wrong thing, and you're not the only person who feels that way, but there is something wrong with you. There's something wrong with me as well. The, the problem is we're chasing after the wrong stuff. We're chasing after happiness when we should be pursuing meaning that leads to joy. See, happy is my feeling when something I like happens to me. So happiness is fickle, kind of gums and goes. It's based on circumstances. It's based on happenstance. I can remember a number of years ago feeling very happy one Monday. Monday is my day off, and I was just enjoying life. I had this happy feeling until I went to the mailbox, and I opened up this letter. It was a summons for jury duty, okay? Yeah, especially busy season of my life. I'm like, oh, I don't have the time to hassle with this. But then I looked down and noticed it was a couple weeks off, so I was happy again, right? But then came the Monday morning of jury duty, and so I was unhappy again. And I remember driving to the courthouse, and I'm looking around. There's all these people, like 150 people out there who have been summoned for jury duty. And I'm thinking, look at all these people. They don't need me here. Okay, 150 people were summoned in that day. How many of us do you think were happy about being there? Yeah, none. Yeah, yeah 150 unhappy campers sitting in one room which, by the way, we needed an attitude check. I mean, it's, it's a privilege, really, 
you know, to be able to serve. People in the world would love to be able to serve our country, maintain justice. I'm just being honest about our attitudes that day. You know, one of the things that always kind of amuses me, though, is listening to the different excuses people will give to try to get out of jury duty. Now, my out was pretty easy. You know, the judge looked at me and he said, would you be willing and able to say if this defendant was guilty? And I said, are you kidding me? Like, I'm a pastor. I have to teach what the Bible teaches. The Bible says all have sinned. (laughs) Of course he's guilty. You're guilty. I'm guilty. The whole world is guilty. (laughs) I have no idea why I didn't get selected as a juror. I was like the first person out of there. And so I was happy again. Yes. (laughs) My point is this. We often live for happy, but happy is fickle. Comes and goes based on what happens. Okay, joy is different than happiness. Joy is an internal condition. Let me do my best to try and unpack this biblically. Try to follow me here. It's a little bit tricky. Paul talks a lot about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, the fruit of the Spirit, people, they are not feelings. They're what might be called conditions. A a person's settled character, their life orientation. And so it's stable across circumstances. For instance, to love is to will the good of another. We often think of love as as being this feeling that just kind of hits us. We fall in love. No, no, love is a choice. To love is to will the good of another. A person in the condition of being a loving person wills the good of others. But if I become so consumed with the fact that, or crave the fact that I want just to feel love or that feeling of being in love, then guess what? I'll never do the hard work I need to do to enter into the condition of being a loving person, knowing that I'm loved by God so I can will the good of others no matter the circumstances they create. But if I idolize the feeling of love, I'll never enter into the condition of love. Make sense? Well, joy is also an internal condition. I would say this, joy is a pervasive sense of well-being. A pervasive sense of well-being. And you know what? It comes from trusting that God loves me, that he has a plan, that he's in my corner, that he's in control. So in the final analysis, only God can bring true, lasting joy. Paul, sitting in prison, had a pervasive sense of well-being, regardless of his circumstances. You know, sometimes when we greet each other, we'll ask, how are you doing? And occasionally a person will say, well, I'm doing okay under the circumstances. You ever heard that one? Well, Paul didn't live under the circumstances. Paul's God was over the circumstances, and so Paul lived over the circumstances. And so joy was just the condition in which he found himself. But, you know, you and I, we get so fickle. And one of the reasons we're so bad at predicting what will make us happy is we underestimate the power of little problems, little hiccups in our lives to kind of throw us off track. A number of years ago, around Christmas time, we had all kinds of water issues going on in our home. First of all, the main water pipe coming into our home broke, okay? That wasn't cool. And then right after that, our hot water heater started leaking. It was just like one problem after another, after another, during a busy season, right? It's Christmas season. That Sunday, I'm getting ready to preach a message on experiencing peace and rest. Yeah, I didn't have a peaceful, easy feeling, the eagle said. I had a stressful, high blood pressure feeling going on. But somewhere along the line, I was able to back up enough and go, wait, wait a minute here. 
Right, this is, this is a hot water heater, okay? This is not being in chains for Christ, right? This is not facing martyrdom at the hands of Caesar. It's a hot water heater for crying out loud. Relax, chill. You'll get it fixed. And you know what? As my thoughts changed, my attitude changed. Not my circumstances, but my attitude changed. So if you want to make your life miserable, wait for circumstances to make you happy. But if you want to live in joy, don't ask God, why am I in these circumstances? Ask God, how are you with me in these circumstances? There's a difference there. All right, next, you want to make your life miserable? Do this, compare yourself to other people. Compare yourself to other people. Notice what Paul says here. Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. It's right here. But others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Did you notice that these people who are jealous, envious, comparing themselves, they're not folks outside the church, they're in the church, they're busy preaching Christ. But instead of focusing on what is God calling me to do, they're thinking, well, hey, Paul's ministry is more successful than mine. So they're trying to outdo Paul so they can feel better about themselves, hoping Paul will do worse so that they can feel better about themselves. And you know what? To a certain degree, we all do this. And I compare my marriage to somebody else's, and if theirs looks better and easier and happier than mine, then I'm miserable. I compare my job. I compare my salary. I compare my house. I compare my marriage, my car, my body, my lifestyle, my IQ, my level of success. You know, when you envy somebody else, not only are you unhappy about what you don't get, what you don't have, you're also unhappy about what they do have. Like, I would be less miserable if they were just more miserable, right? It's like the story of the lady who dies and goes to the gates of heaven, and St. Peter's there, and she says, well, how do I get in? And Peter says, well, it's really simple. All you have to do is be able to spell one word. She says, well, what's the word? He says, love. Well, of course, she, she spells it correctly, and she gets in. And then a few years later, St. Peter comes to the same woman and says, hey, would you mind watching the gates for me for just a little bit? And she agrees to do that. And much to her surprise, while she's busy watching the gates, her husband shows up. She says, well, how have you been? And he says, oh, man, I have been doing so well. Remember that beautiful young nurse who took care of you while you were dying? Yeah, we, I ended up marrying her. And then after that, I won the lottery. And so I sold that little rinky-dink place you and I lived in. I bought this big, beautiful mansion. And so my gorgeous new wife and I, we were up on the Swiss Alps skiing, just enjoying our time. And I had an accident, and apparently that's why I'm here. And, man, I'm so glad to be right here at the gates of heaven. How do I get in? She says, well, you, you just got to spell one word correctly. She says, well, what is it? She says, Czechoslovakia. Ooh. <laughs> Here's the thing about comparison. Hear me on this. You'll never find a happy, jealous person. I challenge you to find a happy, envious person. Take, take a look at this. That's the look of comparison right there. Like, why do we do that to ourselves? She's not happy about her rival. You know, in this passage, it's so interesting. Paul talks about two groups of people. 
One group watched Paul's ministry and said, praise God. Another group watched the same thing and said, why God? Like, why him and not me? I want to be him and not me. Researchers at Stanford conducted a study on comparison, like folks comparing themselves to each other. And their hypothesis going in was that unhappy people compare up. They look at people with more money, more intelligence, more success, and that makes them unhappy. And so happy people must compare down, right? They look at people with less money, uh, less intelligence, less success, and that makes them happy. You know what they discovered? Happy people don't compare at all, not up or down. They actually use deeply held internal values as their yardstick for how they're doing. So they celebrate when other people succeed. When other people win, they're like, yes. And they also show concern for other people's failures. You know, a great place to start with this, if you struggle with envy, if there's somebody that, you know, you're just constantly in a, in a battle with that person, there's, there's that struggle going on there, if there's wrestling with comparison in your life, here's what I would encourage you to do. Pray for that person. Put them on the top of your prayer list. That lady at work, that person in your social circles. You know, a number of years ago, Dave Roberts, pastor over at Grace Bible Church, wonderful man of God. About a dozen years ago or so, we decided we need to start a group here in town, a network of pastors who pray for each other. And it started with one group. Now we have three different groups, about 20-some-odd pastors. And we gather together once a month for a couple hours. And we pray for each other, and we pray for each other's churches. See, we cheer each other on. Why? Because we're on the same team. we got the same mission, sharing the love of Jesus in this community. All right, next, you want to make your life miserable? Here's a good strategy. Go it alone. Do it by yourself. You know, I think one of the biggest misconceptions about the Apostle Paul is that he was this brilliant but kind of cranky, difficult guy. But if you actually read his letters, I think you see a different picture painted there. You know, just listen to his language in the first chapter of Philippians. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. He says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. I mean, listen to the emotion here. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Can you hear the love, the concern, the emotion in that? I read about this study that was done on longevity, and their assumption going in was the people who would live the longest would be people who had somebody watching over them somebody caring for them, and they were slightly wrong. What they found was this, people who have somebody to care for actually live the longest. Jesus said it a long time ago, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. See, Paul had joy because he cared deeply for these people. He encouraged them in their faith. You know, researchers say that in any relationship, if there's a ratio of five encouraging, hope-filled positive comments for every one negative emotion comment, then that relationship will flourish. But the magic ratio there is five to one. And maybe that's why the writer of Hebrews says, encourage one another daily. Make this a daily habit, people. Now, hear me on this. It shouldn't all be positive. For every five positive ones, there has to be one, what the Bible calls admonition, 
exhortation, something that's a little painful. I mean, that's a part of healthy relationships. And by the way, a great place to get started with this, to practice encouragement and admonition, is to get involved in our small groups. If you'd like to do that, go to the red tent after the service. Say, I want to get connected with other people. That's how we move people from isolation to doing life together here. And to kind of keep this ratio of five to one going, if you're a cranky person, just ask to be put in a group with five happy people, okay? We got groups, they're all happy, they need someone to balance it out. You can do that. And everybody will grow. Awesome. All right, one more. We got to keep moving here. If you want to make your life miserable, adopt pessimism as a life orientation. Some people do that. Now, on the flip side, let's talk about optimism for a second. There are two kinds of optimism. There's what you might call little optimism and big optimism. Little optimism focuses on little hopes. You know, I hope that I'll get a convenient parking spot when I get to church this morning. Like, I hope I'll run into somebody I like at church. I hope this sermon is almost done. It's not, by the way. But those are little hopes. Big optimism, that focuses on big dreams. Man, we're on the verge of something great. It's wonderful to be alive. And folks, optimism as a personality trait is mostly good. The researchers say it's associated with health. It's associated with the ability to persist. It's associated with having lots of friends. But sometimes optimism isn't good. For instance, a young person can be overly optimistic and say, well, I can smoke and I'm never going to get cancer. See, optimism isn't a good thing if it's not rooted in reality. Well, Paul's optimism is rooted in reality, but it's so positive that the word optimistic wouldn't do. And so amazingly, in the Greek here, Paul creates a new word. If you look at the phrase, I eagerly expect, that's one word in the Greek, but you won't find it around in Greek literature prior to Paul. What Paul does is he takes three little Greek words, the word from, the word head, and the word stretch, and kind of jams them into one big compound word. And the word picture is this. It's kind of like a runner who is so excited to get to the finish line that he averts his eyes away from everything else and stretches his head forward. Like every fiber of his being straining to get to where he's going. He can't wait to get there because he knows how good it's going to be. Sitting in prison, not knowing if he's going to live or die, Paul says, I eagerly expect and hope. I wake up in the morning, I look at these chains, and I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. How do you stop a guy like that? What kind of prison can hold a guy like that? That's not little optimism. It's also not groundless, mindless optimism. That is Christ-inspired optimism. I mean, for Paul, all of life can be summed up in one word, Christ. He's inspired by Christ. He's loved by Christ. He's guided by Christ. He's sustained by Christ. Paul loves and trusts and serves Christ. Christ is like his obsession. And Christ is his orientation to all of reality. And therefore, whenever problems hit, you know, I'm in chains, I'm in a prison, Paul comes back to this great two-word question, okay? It's two words in the Greek. It's found in verse 18. We translate it this way, but what does it matter? Paul said, I have all these problems, but what does it matter? Now, in Greek, it's actually much punchier. It's the little phrase, tiskar. 
Tisgar. Let's all say that together. Tisgar. You know what it means? So what? Big deal. Who cares? Tisgar. Tisgar. I have a great question that you can carry around with you this week. Anytime anything goes wrong, and things will go wrong, just say Tisgar. Tisgar, who cares? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The water heater blows up. Tisgar, who cares? I get a new water heater. The car breaks down. Tisgar, who cares? We can get a new car, right? We can repair this car. The pastor messes up. Tisgar, who cares, right? We can send him to pastor rehab school in Tahiti or someplace like that. I don't know. Tisgar, who cares? Failures, disappointment, chains, prisons, rivals, suffering, poverty, martyrdom. Tisgar, who cares? The important thing is Jesus loves me. And he's working together even the messed up things in my life for good. So I can say, I'm good. No matter what happens today, no matter what happens tomorrow, I can continue to rejoice because joy is not a feeling of happiness based on what happens around me. It's a condition of my soul. It's a pervasive sense of well-being regardless of my circumstances. Regardless of my circumstances. It is, as this passage says, it's the eager expectation and hope that makes even prisoners just excited about what the God and Father of our Lord Jesus is going to do in their life. It really is God's great tiskar. Big deal. So what? Who cares? Whatever. Flung in the face of darkness, despair, depression, death, you name it. That's real lasting joy. So let's get out there and spread it around. Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you so much that by just taking a look at the opposite of what Paul does, we, we can learn a lot of lessons because these are things we do. We oftentimes wait to be happy or joyful until things are just right, our circumstances are just right, when we can live above the circumstances, not live under the circumstances. God, how often do we look around and we compare ourselves to others to determine joy in our lives? Or we try to go it alone when we need to be building into other people. We need to be loving you and loving others as we love ourselves, as the great commandment says. And God, it's so easy to slip into pessimism as well as a life orientation to look at all the things that could go wrong. God, I'm thankful that you are bigger than all those things. And your word tells us otherwise. I thank you for this powerful, powerful passage from Philippians 1 and the life of Paul. And I pray that we would take these truths and run with them, begin to apply these truths. That we would not depend on circumstances or use comparison. We would not live alone. We would not be pessimistic. But instead, we would follow what we see in your word. Lord, we know that we need the Holy Spirit to do that and to do that well. And so we ask for his power in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, people. So this week, I just want to encourage you, keep in the forefront of your mind the most important truth of all. Jesus loves you. And even in the messed up things of life, he is working for good. So no matter what, you can say, Tiskar. Tiskar, I'm good. You guys have a fantastic Sunday.